Climate change is a global phenomenon. But we experience it where we live, in our homes and workplaces, streets and parks, and in our bodies, wherever they're found. For 4.2 million people, that's in Montreal. Welcome to Zone Rouge, CJLO's series about the impact of the climate crisis on Montreal. Montreal has made ambitious targets on climate change. And people in Montreal have made headlines around the world by gathering in the hundreds of thousands to demand action on climate change. But the city is going to be changed by the climate, too. This week on the series, Disease. When we talk about a planet that's not surviving, it's pretty clear uh, that our health is in danger at so many levels that we can hardly even discuss it anymore. And it's not just about us. And if it's always just about us, it's not going to improve. Asthma, diabetes, Lyme disease. The list of health conditions that will be exacerbated by the climate crisis is growing all the time. And it isn't just people that will be affected. When it comes to health, it's clear what happens to our bodies reflects the vulnerabilities on a planetary scale. I was first told that there is no Lyme disease north of Barrie, where I live. We're seeing diseases that we never used to see, that we never were trained for. Like uh, the, the ticks need a, a you know minimum uh, amount of um, of degree temperatures in in order to to go to the next stage, you know, to to grow essentially to grow up and really climate change is just um, allowing temperatures to be suitable for tick survival. Whether we're parents or not, we all know children and we all uh, want the best for them, really, sincerely, even people who are making bad decisions right now. I think that uh, sometimes the links just aren't really made clear in, in their minds and in their, in their decision-making process. And so the idea is really to to impress upon them the, the, the real dangers, the real risks of the decisions that are being made now for the health and the future of, of the next generation. This series was recorded on unceded Indigenous land, where the Ganyagahaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters, and in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I'm Maura Donovan. Let's get to it. It's a beautiful spring afternoon in Montreal. You're taking advantage of this, the first truly warm day, an early one this year, at the beginning of April, with a picnic in the grass on the mountain. A couple weeks later, you start to notice that you're not feeling so great. Uh, the first phase of the initial phase uh, will be normally a fever, very non-specific symptoms. 
stepping into a hot shower to dispel some of the chills that have come with your fever, you notice in the bathroom mirror a rash behind your knee, a red circle with a dot in the middle. The classical rash, the erythromigrans that it's called, and it's the, the target, you know, the, the boring rash. By this point, you're starting to suspect that you may be in the early stages of Lyme disease. Luckily for you, it's relatively easy to treat at this point. Easy to treat in the terms that it's antibiotics and people tend to respond well. But not all health conditions associated with climate change are so straightforward. And the kinds of changes associated with the climate crisis, increasing air pollution, higher temperatures, and the destruction of habitat, threaten every part of our bodies. But let's start at ground level, so to speak, and stay with Lyme disease. And that starts with the sesame seed-sized tick on the grass on that unseasonably warm day on Mount Royal. Having picked out a spot near a well-traveled path, this tick, a black-legged tick, has climbed to the top of a blade of grass and is hanging out there with her two front legs stretched out, a behavior known as questing. From here, she's perfectly positioned to grab onto your shin as you brush past, and then to bite you in the back of the knee and spread some of her supply of Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria to you, giving you Lyme disease. With climate change, this transmission is happening more and more frequently in Canada, mostly in Ontario, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. Yeah, so in the past decade, we've seen quite a significant increase in the um, in the number of Lyme disease cases. So not um, I don't remember exact exact figure, but let's say prior two thousand and ten, so around there, we had about you know like a hundred and fifty cases per per year, and then since two thousand and seventeen, we have over two thousand cases a year. So it's still a fairly fairly you know fairly rare disease but we have really noticed it increasing this is camigio i'm a phd student at the university of montreal so my background is actually that i have a doctorate in medicine uh, so at the same time i'm also a resident in public health um, and, and preventative medicine at the university of sherbrooke for the past three years guillo has been part of the surveillance team in quebec conducting surveys of specific sites to assess the abundance of ticks, including in Montreal. Um, in Montreal, in the, since I've started, actually, we have seen quite a significant increase, and it's quite down, you know, um, very south of the province. Uh, the ticks come from, you know, Vermont, Maine, New York, um, and through migratory birds um, through the years, that, that's how the ticks get there. So it's not that surprising that eventually there will be big, like, large populations of ticks. As the climate changes, ticks are marching steadily northward, beyond their original habitat in the southern, central, and eastern U.S. And as the number of days above zero increases in places like Quebec, tick numbers are increasing, as are the number of ticks carrying Lyme disease-causing bacteria. If they get to reproduce more, have more babies, and a denser population, the chances that they, more of them are sick will also be uh, greater. Not only not because they can transmit it to each other, but because they tend to feed on the same host. So what usually is a white-footed uh, mouse. That's Pierre Schwartz, a tick researcher at Bishop's University. It's if one of the mouse is sick, and then many, many ticks bite this one mouse, then they will all get infected. In other words, ticks aren't born carrying Lyme disease. They get it from an intermediate host, like the white-footed mouse, before passing it along. The white-footed mouse is also tracking north. 
It's native to the central and eastern U.S., but has been moving into southern Quebec, lured northward by milder winters. All of this makes it more likely that the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria can enter your bloodstream via a tick bite at the back of your knee. Um, and it tends to hide in places where our immune system isn't able to attack it very efficiently. Uh, so things, you know, like the articulation, sometimes heart muscles and, and brain. So uh, and all the um, consequences of this end up actually s stimulate kind of a maladaptive immune response or an inflammatory response. And that's what will subsequently cause the signs and symptoms we get but it's really the long-term sequelae that we're worried about um so later on in the disease so it can be weeks or months sometimes even years in the extreme um and it's really um the arthritis so it can be very debilitating so it's associated with a lot of morbidity um otherwise there is involvement of the heart muscle as we mentioned and neurological especially like peripheral uh, neuropathies so uh, facial nerve palsies is when um the facial nerves aren't able to communicate properly so uh, you know the face essentially is paralyzed on one side Monitoring can help prevent Lyme from getting to this point by making physicians aware that ticks are in the environment, increasing the odds of diagnosis in Lyme's early and most treatable stages. It also makes people aware that ticks are present in spreading Lyme disease, even in urban environments like Montreal. But Lyme isn't the only zoonotic infection, meaning a disease that can pass from animals to humans, connected to the climate crisis. Other tick species are also moving north, carrying diseases like Rocky Mountain spotted fever and tick-borne encephalitis. And some research suggests that malaria, which was once an issue in southern Canada, including a deadly outbreak during the construction of the Rideau Canal, could once again become an issue in places like Montreal, in part due to warmer temperatures stemming from climate change. Even zoonotic diseases that start far from Montreal can have an impact on the city, and on a different part of people's bodies. Can do to your body. David, let's start with you. Uh, we've heard a lot of stories about COVID symptoms being really mild. The most um, recent and uh, all-encompassing is the current crisis around COVID-19, which has direct links on land degradations. This is Jenna Webb, a researcher who studies the links between health and environment. So pandemics like this arise when uh, natural landscapes are encroached upon. Uh, natural landscapes uh, include high genetic diversity, uh, lots of different kinds of animals, and within a population of animals, great variety between different individuals. But as uh, land space is reduced, uh, there's fewer and fewer animals, and the populations uh, end up with quite similar traits. Uh, amongst individuals. And when that happens, uh, viruses, which are designed to uh, circumvent our Im immune systems, find that much more easy to do because there's less variety, less difference between different individuals. Once they make it past one individual, they're likely to make it past the immune system of other individuals. Uh, and then once you, when the land degradation is happening because humans are arriving and building cities or uh, some sort of industrial activity, then you put humans in contact with that uh, increasing population of viruses. And that's when the viruses um, sometimes can spill over. That means that they, from their original host, which was say a bat, they can make it into a, uh, either directly into humans. Uh, coronaviruses need a 
uh, intermediary host before they can make it into humans. So they spill over into something like a pangolin or a civet. Uh, and then from there, when the humans are in contact with those animals, which are often sold at wet markets, uh, it can the, the virus can sometimes mutate and be able to make it into uh, a human population. And then once it's in a human population, we live so densely now in cities, it's really easy for these types of viruses to uh, spread throughout the human population. With COVID-19, the focus has been, understandably, on developing a vaccine. But Webb says from a standpoint of preventing future pandemics, healthy ecosystems provide a more important measure of protection. We don't know when the next pandemic will arise. We don't know what the host will be. We don't know which virus. Uh, But if we think of it in an ecosystem framework, if we understand that ecosystems that are degraded have this tendency to allow viruses to spill over and eventually enter human populations, then uh, we can work towards prevention, uh, maintaining a sufficient amount of biodiversity in our ecosystems so that it's harder for viruses to beat our immune systems. Uh, I think that's probably the key is working uh, on the prevention side of things rather than reacting once Uh, it's too late, basically, and the the virus has already escaped uh, the natural environment and made it into our uh, built environments. Given the health risks it poses, Webb says action on the climate crisis has been frustratingly slow, a reason she joined a grassroots initiative called Mère au Front, which started shortly before the pandemic. This has always been important to me, so I chose my career path based on my dedication to the environment and the health of people. And uh, that was only reinforced as I became a mother and I started looking at the future that was most likely for my children. Uh, And as the years ticked by and uh, we ignored what was very clear and right in front of our faces that uh, we needed to start taking action now, and that with each year passing, it was becoming um, more and more difficult uh, and more and more unlikely that we would get things under control. And I I think uh, we all, whether we're parents or not, we all know children and we all uh, want the best for them, really sincerely, even people who are making bad decisions right now. I think that uh, sometimes the links just aren't really made clear in, in their minds and their in their decision making process. And so the idea is really to to impress upon them the, the, the real dangers, the real risks of the decisions that are being made now for the health and the future of, of the next generation. Pandemic respiratory infections like COVID-19 are one of the risks. But it's not even the only way the climate crisis will impact the lungs. I think as a physician, I wear the green tag of La Sève at work and people ask me all the time what it is. I use it as an opportunity to say when people come for asthma and they ask what they can do. You know, of course, I'm focused on the well-being of their child or, and on the treatment. But I say to them, listen, do you understand why, this, why there's 100 kids in this room and there would have been 20 years ago, there would have been five. It is because of climate change. It is because of our car use and our fossil fuel use. And you can't, you're not going to cure your kids just by giving them puffers of ventilator in the short term, yes, of course, but in the long term, you as a parent have to be responsible. So I think, you know, it's trying to have conversations and not 
feeling uncomfortable to have conversations. That's Dr. Kelly Martin, an emergency physician at the McGill University Health Center. She says in her practice, she's already seeing the impacts of climate change, more children coming into the hospital with asthma. The climate crisis makes asthma worse. Smoke from ever-growing wildfires, allergies triggered by plants that produce more pollen than ever thanks to warming temperature, and increasing air pollution elevate the risk that a child will develop asthma or have a serious asthma attack. And in Montreal, the effects of air pollution are not experienced equally. In Montreal, we have, uh, we have seen that low-income individuals tend to be uh, exposed to higher concentration of uh, air, uh, traffic-related pollutants, as an example. The worst case scenario was for the low-income individuals. In, com- in, com- in comparison, in the United States, sometimes the, the, the situation was, was worse for, for example, uh, Afro-American. But in Montreal, we uh, have determined environmental inequities for low-income individuals first and uh, in a lesser extent to, vis- to visible minorities. Matthew Carrier is an urban planner and he did his doctoral research on the inequitable distribution of the impacts of air pollution in Montreal. In Canada as a whole, more than 14,000 premature deaths are attributed to air pollution every year, part of a global total that's over 4 million deaths. Those who have pre-existing conditions or who live close to industries or major roadways are most at risk. And in Montreal, Carrier says people in low-income neighborhoods have the greatest exposure to pollutants. It could be related also to the, the fact that they live in a kind of uh, bad housing. It, it could be worse for low-income individuals if they live in, uh, in uh, residential areas where the, um, the quality of, of building is sometimes, sometimes bad. It could also affect their, their health. It could be really a really big problem for this population. Pollutants include nitrogen dioxide, which worsens asthma and may increase the risk of developing conditions like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Another form of air pollution, particulate matter, causes lung cancer, strokes, and respiratory illnesses. A third pollutant, ozone, also contributes to deaths in Canada and is made more dangerous by higher temperatures. Because these pollutants are concentrated in certain parts of the city, mitigating these health risks from climate change means considering who is most affected. If we take a a closer look on the areas where the vegetation cover is less and where the urban density is higher and where is sometimes the the traffic-related pollutants are also higher, I, I think that these areas could be really uh, could be really affected by uh, climate change, and I think it's really important to take a closer look on these uh, on these areas to see if there is some mitigation measures or different uh, different things that, that could be put. Because I think in a in a city like Montreal, the effect of the effects of climate change could be really different if you are in a really green um, neighborhood in comparison if you live in a central area with a few green spaces and a few presents of vegetation. Sufficient funding to public transit to reduce traffic on the main traffic arteries could be a good solution. Also to build social housing in other areas than, than areas that are close to highways or other uh, traffic arteries could be also 
a good a good way to reduce the the environmental inequities for low-income individuals. Addressing environmental inequities through improved social and supportive housing could also help with the impacts of climate change on another part of the body. Extreme temperatures put strain on the heart, leading to heat stroke and other serious conditions. Increasingly frequent and more severe heat waves are also disproportionately deadly for people living with mental illness and can have consequences for people's mental well-being, fueling an increase in violent crime and conflict. For sure, street people are the most uh, endangered by um, the increasingly intense heat waves that we see. Not just increasingly intense, but increasing in number. During the heat waves, you know, we proactively go out and try to invite people in to stay out of the danger. That is, um, you know, an intense, you know, uh, 30, 33, 34, 35 degree heat. Uh, so that that's brutal, especially if you're getting, you know, you're, you're exposed directly to the sunlight. That's, that's very tough. Many people who are living in very low income uh, in some facilities for homeless people, um, some of the people who are couch surfing, they don't have access to air conditioning. So even inside, it can be very dangerous for sure. Now, couple that with people who have, who are on uh, regulate, uh, regimented medication for psychosis or bipolar condition, and, um, and they're thrown off the routines by, by these kinds of moments, these kinds of incidents. Um, you can sometimes find yourself uh, with, with a lot of uh, conflict to manage. James Hughes is the president and CEO of the Old Brewery Mission, which offers emergency and long-term housing for people in Montreal, as well as mental health care to people experiencing homelessness. He says extreme heat events, like those Montreal has experienced in recent years, can be destabilizing. It throws people off, and it's, it's scary, right? Uh, if you've got... You know, you and I have a place to go. Um, you know, we can turn the fan on. Um, what if you don't have that? What do you do? It's it's like right out of a right out of a, a TV show. Like, how do you survive? It's dystopian in nature. But you know, that is our purpose. We cannot help them into housing if they're not safe. So we we have to get them inside and, and work with them. We can work with people out in the street. We can work with people in the camps. But it's so much better than they're inside. Uh, we can build that relationship, we can reduce the tension, you know, we can start get planning going. But um, uh, otherwise, it's very hard. Air-conditioned cooling centers and emergency care can respond to heat threats in the short term. But in the long term, access to adequate housing in neighborhoods with enough vegetation to keep temperatures down are key to mitigating the health consequences of climate change. By now, it should be clear that no part of the body is immune from the effects of climate change. But thinking of ourselves as bodies, rather than parts of a whole, might be part of the problem. You know, when we talk about health effects, I think that this is a question, actually, that, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, it was a question that we were interested in and, and attended to, but when we talk about a planet that's not surviving, it's pretty clear uh, that our health is in danger at so many levels that we can hardly even discuss it anymore. And it's not just about us. And if it's always just about us, it's not going to improve. In other words, 
we're only as healthy as the most vulnerable part of this whole we all share. Many dimensions of the climate crisis affect our bodies, but increasingly, climate change is having an impact on our minds. start to see that the skies cloud over and you start to see the wildfire smoke come in. A lot of people talk about, you know, feelings of anxiety and, and taking them back to an experience they may have had with a wildfire um, previous to that. And so that just kind of that heightened level of anxiety as these events start to start to be more frequent um, can really put people at a heightened sense of anxiety. And there's also our understanding of climate change writ large. So perhaps we haven't experienced a specific hazard, um, but we all read the news and we all hear about uh, these events taking shape and how our climate is changing and the predictions for our future if we're not addressing the issue. And so this kind of awareness of climate change, the dire impacts can really uh, weigh on many of us. grief and what happens to a winter city when winter changes that's next time on the final episode of zone rouge this episode was produced by me moira donovan with production help from zoe bailey stetson until next time